Hello, welcome to How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Join us weekly to walk through the entire law school admissions process from application to orientation. In this episode, we're going to focus on international applicants. I'm Jake, and joining me again are Brigitte and Aaron. And how are we doing today, everyone? We're doing okay. I just told you guys that the sky here in New England is full of smoke for no reason, I guess. But but now I'm sitting here, so I can't go. I can't go close them again. Oh no! How how about you, Brigitte? Any smog in your direction? No, everything's all right here. Blue skies, having fun. No lie, it's it's a beautiful day outside. So for our friends who are listening to this podcast in October in our residence of the Northeast Corridor of America, we're very sorry for the flashback you just had, <laughs> the visceral <laughs> remembrance of those days in June when the sky went yellow, orange. What color you got, Aaron? It's weird that the sky is white, but the sunlight filtering through is red. When it splashes through the through the trees or something, it's red on the ground, which is very unsettling perhaps an inspiration for post-apocalyptic art. I've done, I've written so much post-apocalyptic stuff already. I don't know if I can bear to do any more, but, but I guess. You, you didn't think, you didn't think it'd be prescient. <laughs> yeah, so on that note, let's, let's turn to the topic of the day. So international students who are a not insignificant amount of applicants to law school, and they face some different questions and different issues with their applications. And so we wanted to make sure that we, we had a podcast where we went through as many of those questions and concerns as possible. So we're going to begin with talking about who are international students, international applicants, because there are a couple varieties of folks based on where they're from, based on their educational background, some academic issues that you want to keep in the back of your mind, some non-academic issues, and then eventually some common questions that we run into when working with international students, and also based on our past experience working admissions that we're used to having. But let's begin at just the bare basics. Who is an international student? Okay, so Brigitte, can you walk us through? There's the most common case. Okay, so, you know, the foreign national who, who's coming from abroad. Tell me about some of your students that you've worked with. What, what are we talking about there? Yeah, we're, we're talking about folks who, you know, were from a country that's not the United States. They studied in their home country, whether a, law, a bachelor law degree or, or something else. And then they come and they, they want to do a JD. So those folks, we can, you know, they're a citizen of another country who, who did their undergrad degree in another country. So that's one category. The other category are U.S. citizens who decide to do their BA abroad somewhere, whether the UK or in the UK is common, but there's also other ones. And then there's a third category, which are that same non-US citizen, but they went to an English-speaking school in the United States, Canada, etc. So those folks are in a, in a bit of a different category, and we'll talk about why that is. Totally. Shortly. So actually, yeah, let, let's just pivot into into that because that then leads us into talking about the academic issues that international applicants face, and those three categories we just mentioned: the foreign national who received their degree abroad, their education outside of the United States, the American who then went outside the U.S. for their undergraduate experience, and then the foreign national who did their undergrad in the States, their academic profile with LSAC through LSAC will each look a little bit different. So let's just walk through this quickly. And, and I think we've mentioned in previous podcasts that as far as what LSAC does when calculating a, an LSAC calculated GPA, they will only do that for students who attended an undergraduate institution in either the United States or Canada. So if you are that American who went to school in the UK for undergrad, you will have a blank GPA. If you are the Korean student who went to school in Korea, you will have a blank GPA. 
But if you're the Korean national who studied at NYU, you will have a reportable GPA. And these are all different considerations. So the flip of that is that if you are the student who studied abroad for undergrad, and by studied abroad, I mean you received your degree from outside the United States or Canada, statistically, you may just have an LSAT or a GRE as your statistical calling card. And, and that can present some issues for schools as they're looking at your profile. But also, while your GPA is blank, LSAC will provide an interpretation of your undergraduate transcripts for the admissions file readers. And they'll try to explain your, your school's grading system and how your grades fell into that rubric. To be frank, there can be a lot of interpretation there, right, Brigida? I mean, there's superior, average, I mean, as, as long as you're not below average. But I mean, gosh, I, I certainly would see applicants come from Cambridge where they told LSAC told me that their marks are effectively mediocre. But then the student received, a you know, a 173 on the LSAT and they were studying something really fancy at Cambridge. And I hear Cambridge is, is a good school these days. I don't know if they've lost their accreditation or anything. So I don't know. What, what do you think about that and how LSAC would interpret that? I think it's true that some of this, a lot of those schools or some of those schools don't have great inflation. And I think it is it's challenging for law schools to to distinguish all the, the various systems and whether there's great inflation and to what degree and what these interpretations really mean These you know, a scale of one to 100 and half the classes in the 60s. I mean, if you're in the 60s in the US, that you know, it wouldn't be a that, good That's grade, bad. You know, <laughs> <That's> yeah. <laughs> but at other schools, that's absolutely fine. Or you'll get, I think it's Oxford, I can't remember, who gives, you get the whole paragraph from their, from from their, their tutor. tutor. And, yeah. and so there's lots of, so but in part because of that, LSAC is supposed to be doing that not really standardization, but some kind of analysis of, of what this really means and, and, and how well that person did in that context. I don't think anyone knows every single university in the United States, I mean, in the world and exactly what it means, but there's some attempt made there. So I think as people, some people work in admissions for 20 years, they probably have a lot more experience in interpreting and, and putting their own stamp on what LSAC does. But yeah, so that's basically how it happens. It's a, it's a tough thing because there are so many different standards, but that's an attempt to qualify in some way a GPA. It still doesn't show up as a number as we, as we know. So it does put a little more pressure on your, your LSAT. And that for some people, that's great because their, their LSAT is really high or they know they're going to do well on the LSAT and, and maybe their GPA wasn't that great and they know it no longer matters as much. And also on that note of, of, you know, learning about your school, if an admissions officer thinks that you're a compelling candidate and they just, they've never heard of your school before, they're likely to do some research on that. And also, I, this is one of my favorite parts of working with an admissions committee made of faculty. It was always really neat for someone to say, hey, I know someone who teaches there. It's a great school and, and a school that you've never heard of before. And again, if you work long enough in admissions, you know every school in the United States. You've, you've seen applicants from everywhere. So it's kind of cool to, to hear that from a faculty member like, oh, yeah, I, I co-wrote a paper with someone from this school in Germany you've never heard of before. Oh, they're the best in philosophy on the continent. And you have nothing else to say other than, huh, you learn something new every day. Talking about the importance of the LSAT for students who receive their degree abroad, I think that there's also a unique emphasis for those candidates, potentially, on their LSAT writing sample, and that this is a bit unique versus a lot of other candidates. And, I, and we spoke about this in the episode regarding the CAS report, but can you walk us through why would the LSAT writing sample be a bit more important for the German student who went to a German university versus the random American who attended Michigan State for undergrad? Right. 
So yeah, you want, I mean, I think for two reasons. One is is to have a good look at the writing skills of this particular person, right? It, it does take a high level of English to do well in law school, and, and you're going to be graded on your writing. So that you want to make sure that that writing sample looks good and is good. And as we said in the in the last episode, it's the one piece of writing that really can't be altered by anyone else, edited by anyone else, proofread by anyone else. So it's a true representation, even if, you know, a snapshot of it, of what that student can do. So it's it's just a good mini test of, of language ability. Sometimes international students will get interviewed in part because of that, too. It's in everyone's interest that admissions committee selects folks who are going to be successful at the law school. And an interview, making sure the English level is sufficient, I think is can be part of that, just like the LSAT writing sample can be. And on that note, yeah, let's talk about TOEFL, like who needs to take it and and, and why. Mm-hmm. Because that is related to English proficiency in the same way that the LSAT writing sample is. So I, th- I think the rule of thumb is that if you did not attend an English-speaking undergraduate institution, either for an undergraduate degree or for a graduate degree, then you should expect that you will have to take the TOEFL or some schools are expanding their English proficiency tests. Perhaps they take the IELTS as well. But you should expect that you will have to take that examination. And schools are sometimes flexible on providing waivers for that based on if you have a a proficiency in English that would not be otherwise obvious from looking at your academic transcript. So perhaps your one of your parents speaks English and English was spoken in the house, even though you were born and raised in in a non-English speaking country. Or also, I mean, I've certainly worked with a number of, of students who come from places where English is perhaps not the predominant language of business and instruction, but it is prominent. So places like India, Pakistan, where certainly English is, if not the lingua franca necessarily, it's, it's certainly common enough where I'm not surprised if someone has a very high level proficiency in English. I'd sometimes see students who've worked as trans translators or who are currently teaching English at a school in a non-English speaking country. And so, you know, it never hurts to, if you fall into one of those categories, to reach out to admissions offices and politely ask them, hey, based on my experiences or based on my background, do I still need to take the TOEFL or can I receive an exemption from that? I have a question. This year, I worked with a couple of students who were ostensibly required to take one of these tests, but instead did some kind of a video, like it was like a video demonstration of their English proficiency, but I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. So schools sometimes move in that direction too, because it can be a more direct analysis versus the TOEFL. The TOEFL is the gold standard in some ways, just because we're all used to it. However, I would notice more so when I worked in undergraduate admissions, where I was mostly working with international applicants, that there could be regional variations in TOEFL scores that were not necessarily connected to the experience you would have when speaking with the student. So for example, typically lower scores from Latin American applicants, but then when you would speak with them, their English proficiency was perfectly suitable for attending a college or University of the United States. So a video interview can get around that TOEFL regionality, regional bias. And also it's typically quicker and it's cheaper. And you can actually listen to the person speaking English. You can watch their comprehension and the reaction to the questions being asked. And given that not germane to this topic necessarily, but and, and yet is, I wonder if schools are going to start utilizing video interviews more just for all applicants in order to help us 
assuage any fears regarding AI assistance with writing their their statements. That you can always use video interviews to ascertain someone's speaking ability, not only for international students, but also for your domestic students too. Is there a connection between who they are as they present themselves and who they appear to be on paper? So video is a pretty nice way to do that until AI somehow takes over videos too. I think it already has, but let's. This is a dark topic. Yeah. Let, <laughs> <laughs> We've already mentioned one dystopian thing with with wildfires. I'm writing something right now that involves. Well, it doesn't. We didn't. I don't need to get into it. Wildfires, <laughs> Wait, dystopia, I'm... AI, comedy. Check it out. It sounds like the perfect summer reading <laughs> book for next year. I can't wait. Okay, well, hey, and, and those are some of the academic issues that are going to face our international applicants. But also, let's let's talk about some of the non-academic issues and also some of these core questions that you may want to consider as you're developing your application materials because admissions officers are going to be considering them. The biggest one being the most basic, which is why do you want to get an American JD? Why not just get an LLM. And Brigitte, what are what are some of the, the reasons you hear from the students that you've worked with as to why they want to go down this road? Yeah, I mean, I think there are folks, sometimes they don't make that clear. And I think it's important to think about and certainly have clear in your own mind if you are applying. And I think possibly, but I'd love to hear your views, make that clear in your essay too, right? Why, why, why do something that takes three years and a lot more money if you can get the same thing out of a one-year degree? And you don't need, you know, all of the same all of the same qualifications. However, folks in certain parts of the, and I think in certain parts of the world, an LLM is still really great, and it's kind of the gold standard for what international students want to do. But more and more, at least I, I feel like there's a growth in interest in having a JD. Now, for some people, it's clear you can't get an LLM if you don't have a domestic law degree, right? So then, yeah, then you have to go for the JD. But we are seeing more and more, you know, BA law degrees from Korea, China, Latin America, other other country, other regions of the world coming in for a JD, and not always clear why. Some people say it's because in their particular region that it carries more weight. It's what people are doing. It's how how you compete. But yeah, what what are you hearing as to why JD and not an LLM? Yeah. So typically employment, either back home or in the United States. So in the case of the United States, and for our audience who's listening, and they've made it this far, even though none of this applies to them, they just love the, the soothing tone of our voices. So to practice law, you typically need a law degree based in that country. And in the case of people who have received a law degree from outside the United States, there are some states that allow you to sit for the bar if you receive a master's in law, otherwise known as an LLM. And it's convenient that two of those states, California and New York, are perhaps the most attractive states for most foreign attorneys as far as where they would want to work in the United States, since those are the two biggest markets in the U.S. However, not every state allows you to sit for the bar if you have an LLB, a bachelor's of law degree from another country, and an LLM. But every state allows you to sit for the bar if you have a JD. And now if you want to work back home in your home country, an LLM can be useful as far as a, an educational certification, but a JD is just a far richer and deeper education in American law or, or international comparative law, if that's your focus. And that's just going to be more valuable to the law firm where you want to work. But related to this, you know, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, is this question of where do you want to work? 
and in explaining your plan on your application because admissions officers know, hey, as a foreign national, if you want to work in the United States, that is certainly possible, but you will have some further hoops to jump through in the form of work visas. Are you ready for that? Meanwhile, if you want to go back home, a JD isn't necessarily going to allow you to work immediately at a law firm. You know, it may, it may, but but basically we just want to know what's your plan and why does the American JD make sense for you? And the more directly and articulately you can explain that, the more it assuages the concerns that a law admissions officer may have that you, you may not have thought this one out and that perhaps you may not be employable after graduation because you didn't have a plan going into things. So that's what I typically hear from students, but also what I encourage students to think about so that we can incorporate that material into your application. And also, in general, I'm a believer in plans as opposed to, you know, winging it has its time and place in your life, but <laughs> applying to law school may not be, be the proper place or the most optimal place for just winging it. Maybe we can yeah. Go, yeah. just go through a go few ahead. concrete examples of the, the way that people answer this question, so just so that we can explain, you know, the, the range of answers that are acceptable. Yeah. So for example, I mean, a, a real easy and basic one is I'm a practicing attorney in my home country and but professionally what we do has ties to US law. And so I would like to have a further background in US law. And this can be international business, right? Since, you know, some firms and agencies have work in multiple countries or I work on cross-border issues, for instance, government, international human rights are some of those areas. Or t tech issues. That's one I've been hearing about. You know, any any subject matter where the United States legal system might be on the forefront, I think that can be attractive to international students so that they're gaining. And then to a certain extent, that might also be why not an LLM. An LLM is one year. You've got to take certain courses. You may not have enough room in your schedule to get the full complement of whatever subject matter you want to, to do. So I think that is important. Just going back to what we talked about, how law schools might look at this. There's a little bit of precarity around the employment situation post graduation for an international student. You have your you have your visa that you're allowed to to use for for x number of years. But depending on the economy, depending on what's going on in the legal sector, depending on politics in the United States, some of that is a little bit precarious and and so it can change and then folks are left without completely sufficient employment opportunities, which can be a bit scary for the student, but also for the law school, because it's going it's to be harder to place people. Sometimes only certain kinds of law firms will, will kind of take that extra risk and cost of training up someone when they know there's an expiration date to that person, you know, leaving the firm. So those are the things that schools worry about a little bit. So it's a little more precarious. And yet lots of students end up doing really great things on the ground in, in the U.S. for a couple of years. And then they take that experience and that degree and return to their countries and do great things. Yeah, totally. And, and in addition to that, I mean, some sometimes I work with students where if the, if the answer to the question of why do you want to do this is, I'd actually like to work in the U.S. I mean, there are any number of reasons why. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm biased as an American. I think the U.S. rocks. You know, we got problems here and there. I'm not going to lie. not going to sugarcoat that. But there are different professional and personal opportunities that may be available here that are not available in someone's home country. And also, like Brigitte just said, as far as transitioning back home at some point, there are a number of global law firms. So they have all, they're based here, but they 
do have offices in China, Korea, various countries in Africa, Europe, etc. So it is possible to do that. And, and the corollary to this that I would also, a conversation I would also have with students would be the American who would tell me that they were really interested in international law. That's wonderful. That's great. What's your plan? Because if you, you have a dream of working for the Jones Day office in Paris, you need to have work authorization in France. Are you a French national? Are you a, a dual citizen? Are you just a French national, period? But the foreign national with an American JD has the work authorization in their home country and the American education that could be attractive for that branch office of that global law firm. So, you know, that's another answer I would hear from students occasionally. But now related to this, let's transition a little bit to another key question that I, I always encourage my foreign national students to think about. Why are you interested in our school specifically? And I think that this is perhaps a little unfair of our foreign national students, but for domestic students, they're born and raised in a certain educational environment in the U.S. where they, they learn about schools because they watch college football games or college basketball games, or they go to the grocery store and see people wearing T-shirts of their alma maters or their favorite sports teams. They're just awash in this, and they kind of intuitively learn about different schools through that. And that may not necessarily be the case of students who grow up elsewhere. So as an admissions officer at, at a school that may be outside, you know, a school not named Harvard or Yale, who has a global name recognition, what is it especially about my school that you think is a good fit for you? And I would find that a lot when I was working at Notre Dame, I typically found that not as many foreign nationals were addressing that specific question as domestic students were. So that could be a, a bit of a blind spot for them. But Brigitte, what, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean, I think that could be solved the same way many other students saw that, which is researching. I don't know. I feel like my international students are very research oriented and really come up with good reasons why they want to go to a particular school in terms of professors, students, courses, all, all the same same reasons. So that that I feel like they, they do a good job with. I do think, and maybe we'll talk about it later, so, you know, a large number of international students, at least who I've worked with, are kind of T14 or bust folks. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that becomes you know, you're in the T14, that's why I'm applying. But no, they, they actually do a good job digging much deeper than that. Yeah. And also, I think that we live in a continuously interconnected world where the internet is the foundation of said connections. And there are troubling, you know, aspects of that, obviously. But a great aspect is it's easier to network with alum alums of different schools. It's easier to connect with current students from different schools. And I, I have typically found that once you dig into the, especially the international student network and alum network at particular schools, it can be a really tight knit network. So as a prospective student, if you reach out to those folks because you found a connection on LinkedIn or on another social media network, those students are typically really going to go out of their way to help tell you a little bit more about their experiences, about the strengths of their school, what they really like, and allow you to incorporate that material into their applications. You just need to do a little bit of that, not just researching legwork, but a little bit of that networking legwork as well. Okay, but, but you know, actually on that note of, you know, the T14 or bus crowd, let's turn to that a little bit. So a question we ask of all students that we work with is, where do you want to apply? 
and we then break that down into what do you want to do professionally? Where do you want to do those things? How important is scholarship for you? How important is rank for you? But for many of our international students, rank can be a big concern because if they want to practice in their home country, there's a an especial concern that people back home will be aware of the quality of the school they attend, i.e. name brand matters to a different extent than it does domestically. I mean, certainly I I can tell you from my experience representing the University of Notre Dame, both for law school as well as undergraduate admissions, an incredibly well-known school in the United States, known for being a good school. And I would go to many high schools in different countries and the students would have never heard about Notre Dame. But interestingly, I found over time that the best way to explain where we were located was to say that we were by Purdue. And because everyone knew Purdue, because Purdue is known for being one of the top engineering and science universities in the country. And that just that flips the relationship between Notre Dame and Purdue completely on its head versus domestically, where you would say, where is Purdue? It's kind of by Notre Dame. It's kind of by Chicago. As a sort of extreme example of this, I just spoke to somebody yesterday, a Korean national who's at UVA. UVA accepts very few international students, but she she had managed to get herself there and she was interested in transferring. And she was very apologetic about this. She knew how it would sound if she said, I want to transfer from UVA to Columbia or Harvard or whatever, you know. But she was saying she had just, she, she eventually did intend to return to Korea. And she was concerned after some conversations that she'd had with people back home that people just wouldn't know about even UVA, you know, even a school ranked that high. She, she still felt that was sufficiently concerning that she needed to try to transfer. It's a crazy world. I had a student recently say that, and I, I may be getting the facts slightly wrong, but bear with me, that in Singapore, the only law degrees that are recognized are, you know, like Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and Columbia, or something like that, like really tippy top. And so I was like, well, how does that, I mean, I'm curious, how does that even happen, right? Like that's different from, oh, I haven't heard of UVA or I haven't heard of Michigan versus why would they only recognize a law degree from a, a couple key places? What, what lobbying happened behind that to make that happen? Because there's not an appreciable difference between any of those schools in terms of acknowledging or not acknowledging a degree. But so there's some real reasons that, you know, real pressures that international students are under. And that's great when they actually do get in somewhere and do well enough to transfer to one of those schools or just go straight to one of those schools. That's fabulous for those for whom it, it applies. But we do have folks who come to us who their, their LSAT just isn't going to get them there. You know, like we said, it's LSAT or bust in, in terms of the, the hard numbers. All the soft factors, of course, matter. But let's just say your LSAT's not in range and you're just not going to get into the T14. Let's say it's a 166 or a 158. Yeah, so there are some options. So the main options I try to encourage students to consider, I mean, certainly there is the option that you can try to retake the LSAT and reapply. There's that. There's the option of, and I always try to do this with all students, you know, let's make sure that we are applying to a broad range of schools so that let's let's say it is a student with the 166. It's okay to apply to T14 schools with the 166. There are students with the 166 who will be admitted to those schools. However, your chances of admission are going to be a little bit smaller. So let's make sure that we're also applying to schools where that 166 is at or above the medians for those guys. Because if you're admitted to those schools and if you accept that offer, you can then attend that school for a year and then apply to transfer. 
especially if you do well academically at the school that you end up going to. But then there's kind of a an interesting third option that we're noticing popping up with some schools, which is that, and this is only for students who have an LLB or a law degree from their home country. But if you have that LLB, if you have that law degree from your home country, there are some American schools that will allow you to transfer in or apply as a transfer student based on that LLB. And so you would come in as a second year student. The most prominent of these being Northwestern, Chicago, and then going a little further down the rankings list, Emory as well. So it's a different approach to your application because you're now writing a personal statement from the standpoint of a transfer, quote unquote, student versus an incoming JD student. But it's a relatively similar process. And we've had some students that we've worked with who've gone down this road successfully, which has been pretty cool. Yeah, we actually all three of us worked with a student this year who's headed to Northwestern with a 166. That was a nice example of him leveraging this particular opportunity. But we should also say he the actual application was 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 very, very coherent and persuasive in terms of why he was doing this. So it did go in as a transfer app, which tend to require a more sort of direct why law, why this, why now approach, which probably we would have recommended for him anyway. But the argument, just so people know, is he, he was a very impressive transactional lawyer in his home country and was interested in pursuing big law in the United States. But he presented that argument as a, as a kind of a... It was a kind of joyful argument. He talked to us about how he would sit across the table from these American lawyers and he'd just be excited about the legal environment that they were a part of. And he wanted to work on these bigger deals, more complex deals to, you know, just expand the range of things that he could do. And so it came across as a very clear why law, but he was able to articulate in a very joyful and credible and sincere way as well. Absolutely. There's another possibility. I think it's quite rare still, but it is a possibility, which is some schools allow LLM students to transfer to a JD. So I think the rules are different for the various schools that allow it. Some only allow it for a current LLM student at that school while they're at that school can transfer into to JD. So then you're not losing any ground. It's still a three-year program and you walk out the door with a JD. Other schools you're an LLM, let's say you try to do the transfer, you don't get accepted. I think, you know, there are very few do at this point still. You go away, you do some work, you can reapply to be a JD transfer at that school. And I've worked with students for whom that has worked. Other schools, you can kind of go a little broader. You got your LLM from school X, went to work for a while. There are a number of schools you can apply to to come in as a, as a second year JD and, and finish up your program. So again, this is a small number of students for whom this applies, but it is a path. We should also note that although those can be some paths, transferring from one JD program at a lower rank school to a higher rank school, doing a two-year program where available at places like Northwestern, or going to a school as an LLM student and then trying to transfer out of that. With all these paths, there will be a possible issue with a lack of scholarship that for the most part, law school merit scholarships and, and even a lot of need-based scholarships are going to be focused on incoming JD students. So if that is you, where you want to balance T14 prestige and employment opportunities with scholarship, this may not be the right route to take. Though I would also say that, you know, the trade-off there is real, that this may be your best opportunity to study at a school of this caliber, but it is going to come at that cost. Or to, to perhaps flip it around into a more positive way, it's a wonderful investment opportunity, given the types of outcomes that, that 
you'll see from students who graduate from Northwestern law, for example, just to use that one last time. But, you know, on, on that note, let's transition a little bit into some of the common questions we get from from our students who are from abroad. One is scholarship opportunity. And the easy answer there is if you are admitted as an incoming JD1L, you will be considered for merit scholarships the same as anyone else. There will be much like for the purpose of admission, probably a bit more of an emphasis on your LSAT for merit scholarship purposes since your GPA is quote unquote non-existent. So just a heads up on that. But now another big question we get, speaking of the stats, is that there are students who feel like pound for pound foreign applicants underperform their LSAT scores. And Brigitte, I was I was wondering if, you know, how do you approach that with the students that you work with? The ones who say, well, gosh, you know, should I even apply to this school? Because I see that a bunch of 177 foreign national students applied last year and, and they really didn't admit anyone. What's up with that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many so many different factors, of course, that go into that. One one factor is what we just talked about is that it's LSAT. That's all you've got in terms of a hard number. And so let's imagine that the 169 who wants to get into the T14, for example, if you have a GPA and that happens to be really high above median, you're still in business for some of the some of the T14. Whereas if 169 is your LSAT score and there's no GPA, it's a much much tougher sell because you're not you're not helping support either median. And so that's why it's a bit of a, a, a tough sell. But even, let's say you do have the numbers. There are lots of other factors that, that schools look at. I mean, first of all, the whole application, the essay, the message, the why law. All, all those it, all those episodes that we've just recorded, all of that time we've spent talking about things. It, Brigitte, it's actually relevant. Yes, it is. Oh, what? <laughs> it Go is figure. relevant. Yeah. So all of those things do matter. Fit for school, maybe, but specifically one thing that, you know, we, again, we mentioned this before, but one thing that's specifically relevant or could be specifically relevant to an international student is if there's a disconnect between your score and your writing ability or your personal statement and your LSAT writing sample. So that's one special thing that applies specifically to international students. But for the most part, it's just overall, like, is this a compelling candidate? Now, I, you know, of course, it's hard. Anyone, you know, and this is not just international students. Sometimes there are students who come to us and say, I applied the cycle. I don't like my results. What happened? And, you know, sometimes we can kind of see what happened when we review the application. But sometimes, it, you know, it's just like, I think there are too many people, applicants who have really high scores, really high LSAT, really high GPA, and the law schools can't take them all. And that that's, that's hard to hear and it's hard to be part of, but it does happen. And, and on that note too, I mean, some of, of the students who are asking those questions are coming from countries where admission into university is based exclusively on a test score. So there can also be a cultural lack of translation because, gosh, this is how I got into my school here. I, I did really well on this one test and that guaranteed me this school and this major. And wait, you're telling me this doesn't guarantee me anything in America? Yeah, it's, it's guys, the people applying to Harvard and Yale and Stanford have are extraordinarily bright and have extraordinary resumes. And all of these schools are very interested in building diverse classes of students from a lot of different backgrounds with a lot of different skill sets. And so not everyone who has perfect stats is going to be admitted, not because Harvard has unreasonable expectations, but just because they don't have to admit everyone with perfect scores. They can care about all these other things, too. And, and I do find sometimes it can be hard to 
for for some students to understand that because of the cultural context that they come from in their home country. Yeah, this reminds me of something, which is that when, when we're trying to create this kind of complex, large narrative, right, it's not just the personal statement, it might also include supplemental essays and a diversity statement. I think it's important for international applicants to keep in mind that like all applicants, they're going to be evaluated alongside other similar applicants. So that if you're an international student and you want to you write a diversity statement, the pitch might not be, because I come from this country, I'm going to offer a perspective that an American isn't going to have. I mean, that, that might be credible if you're coming from like Tuvalu or something. But if you're coming from a country where there are tons of people applying to U.S. law schools, you probably need to, to proactively distinguish yourself from those other applicants. And I'm thinking right now of a student that I had this year who, frankly, is like one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my entire life. So I'm not sure this is like a replicable strategy, but she was the best writer I have ever worked with at Seven Sage, and English was not her native language, which is just un unimaginable. But her personal statement was a relatively straightforward, I mean, a lovely, lovely essay, but relatively straightforward argument about industrial pollution in her home city and the way that that had inspired an interest in environmentalism you know, generally, and then later an interest in environmental law, which is awesome. But that's an argument, you know, I, I saw a couple times this year, something similar to that. I think what distinguished her was active, first actively discussing what you talk about the, the testing requirements in her home country in that diversity statement, but then also turning it into this incredible essay about she, she went to a boarding school for gifted children at the age of three years old. You guys have kids. I have, what? you know, <laughs> I would say that my children are gifted, but I'm, I'm not sure that at the age of, of three, either one of my older sons. They, would... <laughs> they eat paste at an advanced level, right? Right. So, you know, th that's where it started. And then so th there was this really interesting nuanced discussion of the, the educational system in her country that was also just just wrapped up in this amazing personal story of her, the way, you know, the way she picked her way through that system. It involved it. The central anecdote was that she had gotten, she got, a, got the flu. She was like six at this point. She got the flu. So she snuck out of her window in this vast dormitory, climbed the fence, escaped from the school, went to a clinic, got some treatment, then climbed back into the, <laughs> climbed back into the school and went to bed and no one ever knew. That's a good story. I would say that it, it's okay to also, on a diversity statement, educate me on where you come from, because too often we don't think of ourselves as being unique individuals. We don't think of our story as being unique. And they are. And also, simultaneously, I feel like many Americans, even admissions officers who are pound for pound, pretty smart folks, a lot of them have law degrees and, and other advanced degrees, but they aren't aware of cultural differences and geographic differences in these different places around the world. So it's really cool to learn about where you're from, if you feel like that's a core part of your identity. And, and for example, just one of my friends here that I worked with professionally is a Chinese national, and she's from Urumqi originally, which is in the, the Uyghur provinces of, of Western China. She's since moved here, and her kids actually attend the same elementary school as my kids. And I've tried to explain to my children how this is like the coolest thing, that this, this person who I'm friends with is from this one dis very distinct region from China, and it just goes straight over their heads. But for admissions officers, coming from that type of location certainly provides a different perspective on your community or to your community than being from Beijing or Shanghai for instance. So it, it is an opportunity for our, our applicants to consider if they're willing to provide that 
on their application, which sometimes folks can be a little reticent about, but it's it's a, a wonderful opportunity. I had a Korean student this year who talked. She was not from Seoul. She was from another city, which is, she says, regarded as the most conservative city in the country, and people have a distinctive accent there. Her diversity statement was all about sort of this, this code switching that she had learned as a young, young person, where she knew that she couldn't speak in her native accent in Seoul. People wouldn't take her seriously. She also, her, the overall argument of her application was pretty interesting. It was she wanted a U.S. law degree because she wanted to learn about various international tax frameworks because she was interested in figuring out how to, how different jurisdictions could tax multinational corporations and capture some of that tax revenue that was otherwise just floating around. You know, I guess it just flows into Jeff Bezos's pockets. To the, to the Canary Islands. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. Another common question we get from our foreign national students is, hey, are there some schools that are more international friendly, less international friendly? And it probably would not be wise for us to name check any schools on this podcast. But for our international students, this is actually something that every school has to report on their standardized American Bar Association forms. And these are typically called 509 forms because it's ABA standard 509 that dictates that schools have to provide this information. So if you do a quick internet search for ABA 509 report, you'll find these reports really quickly in the ABA's database where they keep all the reports for all the schools for the last 12, 13, 14 years. And you can pull up every school's report and you can see, you can find out their international population in two ways. The first is look at the chart that reports GPAs because schools have to also report how many students are enrolling in that year's first year class who do not have a reportable GPA. And who are they? For the most part, there are a couple other exceptions here and there, but for the most part, those are students who receive their bachelor's degree outside the US and Canada. But then you can also go to the second page where at least we are speaking in a pre-students for fair admission standards world where schools have to report gender and race information for their total enrolled classes to the American Bar Association. So you can see there will be one line on that for non-resident aliens, i.e. everyone who is not a U.S. citizen, permanent resident, or asylee. And so some schools are going to have, you know, two, five, ten percent of their enrolling class every year as foreign nationals. Others will only enroll two total <laughs> for for the entire class or for the entire three-year, you know, enrolling student body. And now professionally, we will never be able to tell is this because the schools actively are not admitting those students, or is it because students who are admitted to the school choose not to attend? We'll never know whether it's the chicken or the egg but it's one of them or it's both of them. And so it may be a waste of time to apply to some of those schools where you see only one or two or three foreign nationals apply or, or enroll every year versus the schools that do seem to have a, a fairly substantial international population. Hey, Jake, on the issue of the folks who have received asylum, mm -hmm. I think you, so they're not treated as an international student in, in that sense. They're, they're treated the same mm -hmm. way as because they're on path for citizenship, is that correct? So, per, right. and and also, I mean, to transition a little bit onto another common question, which is, hey, as a foreign national, you know, financial aid, or and we already talked about scholarship a little bit, but also related to the possibilities of financing your education. If you are a U.S. citizen, permanent resident, or asylee, you have access to federal education loans. If you are not one of those things, then you don't have access to 
U.S. Department of Education loans. If you need further financial assistance to attend school, you're going to need to rely on outside scholarships, loans from your home country, things like that. And yeah, and but then back to your question, Brigitte. Yep, for the purposes of how do I report you to the American Bar Association, if you're an asylee, you count as as U.S. So you would then fall in, or a U.S. citizen permit as asylee. I would then put you into the appropriate race category if relevant. So if you're an asylee from Ukraine, then I would list you as Caucasian. If you're coming from Venezuela, and if you're an asylee, you would be listed as Hispanic. This area actually is where I found out very quickly and cleanly how the U.S. Census Bureau breaks the world down because we we one time had a student whose family were asylees from Afghanistan, which is about as central as you can be in the Asian continent. However, the U.S. Census Bureau considers Afghanistan to be part of Central Asia, which is, for their purposes, Caucasian, versus if you just cross the mountains into Pakistan. Apparently, that's where Asia begins, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, or at least that's where they divide Caucasian white versus Asian. So anyway, trivia fun fact. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to talk about language, you know, Indo-European languages, but maybe that's beyond the scope of our... Ooh, oh, no. I mean, so, right, because there's there's a little bit of a divide there because they would, in a lot of the former Soviet republics that are in that part of the world, Turkic languages may be the base local language, right, Aaron, versus Indo-European? Because once you cross over into India, it's more the Indo-European families. Well, and where you cross is like, you know, those mountains in Afghanistan, too. Afghanistan should be its own its own census designation, I think. I'm sure the U.S. Census Bureau will get on that once they finally make. I'm going to write a strongly worded letter. How about that? <laughs> once they finally make Middle Eastern North African its own census designation, as opposed to lumping those students in as Caucasian white. I'm sure the Census Bureau will get right <laughs> on top of this. No, no doubt. Well, hey, Brigitte and Aaron, thanks again for this conversation on international students. And we we hope you and our audience have really appreciated this conversation. So please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. And also remember to join us next time as we keep diving into the ins and outs of the admissions process on the Seven Sage Admissions podcast, How to Get Into Law School. Thanks for listening to this episode of How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. If you're interested in more help and guidance for getting into law school, also check out our website at sevensage.com. That's the number seven, S-A-G-E.com. You can learn more about our LSAT course and tutoring, as well as the work that our professional admissions and writing consultants can do to help you with your applications. You can even schedule a free consultation with our LSAT tutors and with our admissions consultants.